Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. Welcome to Sunday service. So glad to have all of you here. Um, we're going to get something out of the way before we get to announcements and, and the sermon because uh, we have an infant that we want to, parents have asked us to dedicate him uh, to the Lord. So Justice and Miranda, if you guys would make your way up here um, to the front. Hey, for those of you who don't know Justice and Miranda, this is actually my oldest son and his wife and their second child. And I know you look at me and go, there's no way that you're old enough, Michael, for, for your child to have two children. Uh, you guys can come all the way up here, okay? Especially Shelly, yeah. Uh, the truth is, I am old enough. Here's proof. Um, you know, in our church, we do not practice infant baptism because we believe baptism should be saved for a profession of faith. And then you are baptized in accordance with your profession of faith as that first act of obedience. Instead, what we practice is infant dedication or child dedication, and it is a privilege for us to have parents who acknowledge the role of Christ in their lives and then ask us as a church and family members to hold them accountable to that. So we are going to dedicate my second grandson, Harrison David Chambers, who was born July, not July, uh, June, what day was it? 10th, sorry. It's in the notes, but I didn't highlight it or anything. And I, just, I was like trying to work ahead, but that's why you should follow your script. You know, it's a good thing that you guys don't expect me to be perfect in these formality things. I am terrible at this kind of stuff. Um, weddings and funerals, I'm a little better. I try and stay on script a little bit more, but it doesn't work great. So it is a privilege to be able to dedicate Harrison some scriptures to remind us of why we do this. We are reminded in Proverbs to trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your paths straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. It's our privilege to participate in the public dedication of Harrison David Chambers. Born June 10, 2021. See, it was right here in the notes. I had it right. Yeah. I got the name right? I would hope so. Um, if you're wondering why he's named Harrison David, I believe it's, it, why is that? Harrison Ford? Uh, somebody's a little bit of a Star Wars nerd. He's got, okay, anyway. Um, it's, a, it is a, it's, a, it's a strong name. Um, we're going to call him Sonny when he gets older, I'm sure of it. <laughs> so, following the example of other parents in the Bible, Justice and Miranda have expressed their desire to present Harrison to the Lord. This dedication may not require the supreme sacrifice like that of Abraham, who was called upon to offer his son on the altar, or that of Hannah, who left her son Samuel to serve in the temple with Eli. He was only eight years old. Some of us were like, I would have been privileged to give my child away at eight years, right? You had that kid? Um, others of us, we loved them, and they were precious. So... <laughs> 
However, it's a sober commitment to, responsibility, to responsibly care for that which God has given and to be prepared to release him to his work when the time is right. So uh, I want to invite some other folks up here to join us. We have got extended family from uh, Virginia and Ohio, and that's it, right? Yeah, and so if, if you guys would come up and just face us at the front here. Uh, we're not going to ask you to do anything like crazy, and there's no special hand motions or anything for this. Aunt and uncle, you too. Oh, my goodness. Um, sorry, it's, it's like death for the 14-year-old, and I just made it worse. Okay, so <clears throat> the primary responsibility for the care of Harrison, of course, rests on Justice and Miranda. Scriptures tell us to train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Justice, Miranda, as you engage in this task with joy and peace, may you earnestly, and, and that means like diligently and honestly and like faithfully, seek the Lord daily for his wisdom. For all the events that will occur, all the decisions to be made, and all the needs to be met. For as James says, if anybody lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. May you also daily give thanks to God for your child and for the joy and love he brings to your home. And as he grows, may you earnestly strive to spend adequate time with him, developing in him a strong moral foundation for life and an awareness of the Lordship of Christ and his abiding presence. Extended family. Harrison has the benefit of the influence provided by, we have great grandparents here. And that's not just like they're really good at grandparenting. Uh, like they're really the old ones. And we've got great grandparents. <laughs> and we've got grandparents. And, and, and that's not derogatory. Isn't it a privilege to have so many generations present in our fellowship? Um, I wouldn't want a fellowship full of gray hairs and that's it, nor a fellowship full of youngins, because we tend to reinforce each other's sin habits when we're uh, unigenerational. Anyway, uh, we've got grand, great-grandparents. That was a sermon before the sermon during the baby, baby dedication. Uh, we've got great-grandparents, grandparents. We've got two aunts. We've got an uncle, and uh, we've got other family members that weren't able to be here today. You guys are being asked to provide backup support for his spiritual training. Loved ones, it's your responsibility to provide care and support for this family. I ask you to be faithful in prayer for them, undergirding their efforts to establish a strong Christian home built on Christian principles. I urge you to demonstrate a real interest in and concern for Harrison as he grows physically, mentally, socially, and spiritually. He likes the lights. It's really cool. Church family, guess what? You guys aren't just observers. Every time we have a child brought into our church family, whether they're living in Ohio and kind of at a distance but still consider us family, or they're here every Sunday, it's also our job to be agents of influence in their lives. Church, I charge you to do all that you can to provide and support a place of worship in this community where Harrison and other kids may hear the full counsel of God's word. I urge you to be faithful in providing programs for instruction and discipleship and to demonstrate affectionate kindness toward all the little ones, which means when they're squirmy and noisy in the service, we go, we love you, and we mean it, and we appreciate the fact that we have children in our presence. I want to encourage you and charge you to covenant before God 
to set an example by your lives, not just for Harrison, but for each and every child that walks in the door, that when they see each and every one of us, they see a picture of Christ-likeness. So I'm going to ask everybody to make some commitments. And if you agree with these commitments, would you repeat after me, we do, when it gets to the end of your charge. So church, do you agree to do all that you can do to provide a place of refuge and worship for Harrison, sharing the gospel of Jesus through faithful service to him and all the children of the church, supporting Justice and Miranda when you see them and praying for them, in establishing and maintaining a Christian home, and living out your faith in such a way to inspire Harrison to desire the Christian way of life. Do you agree to that, church? We do. Loved ones, family members, do you agree to support Justice and Miranda in their work to raise Harrison in a strong Christian home, committing to regular prayer for them and working alongside them to show Harrison genuine Christian love and care as he matures? Do you agree to that, family? Now, Justice and Miranda, in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses, do you solemnly undertake to bring up Harrison in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Do you promise early to seek to lead him to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and serve him as Lord? Do you pledge to make your home a place for Christian instruction? Do you promise to set before your son examples of consistent godly living? And now, on the authority of God's word, and as a minister in Christ's church, I de dedicate you, Harrison Justice Chambers, unto the Lord and unto his service, according to his will, Harrison David. It, oh, man. Oh, well. That's what happens when you copy and paste. I'll print out a fresh one for later. <laughs> Harrison, your grandpa's a mess. Give me that boy. Let's pray together. Yes, I'm taking your baby for a few seconds. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your love for us. And we thank you that you give us the privilege of seeing children, both ones that we uh, get to, to uh, raise on our own at times, and then others that we simply get to invest our lives into out of love for you and love for your church. Father, we pray that you would take and do great things in the life of Harrison, and not just him, but all the children of our church. We dedicate him to you as we dedicate each and every one. And we ask that you would bring blessing and maturity and growth and salvation and Christ-likeness into his life and the life of all our children. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Sweet birdie. Oh, I'll give him back. But then I want him some more later. So. In that you have dedicated your son to the Lord, we now lend Harrison back to you, Justice and Miranda, that by the grace of God and the guiding presence of the Holy Spirit, you will bring him up in the ways of the Lord. So, he's yours again for a while. And then he'll grow up and want to leave. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you, church, for allowing us the privilege of dedicating our children and grandchildren to the Lord with you. And if anyone else is seeking to dedicate a child... Uh, happy to do that in the coming days and weeks. We'll schedule it when your family can be here and make it happen. A couple of quick announcements as we get into our time of message. VBS decorating is still, there's still some decorating to be done after service today. So if you're interested in helping, there's a free lunch. I mean, it's 
you know, fairly free. Uh, we won't charge you up front. And then, uh, but we're going to make you pay for it by volunteering a little bit of your time to help decorate. And then, of course, next Sunday is our VBS picnic right after church. So we'll be doing a vacation Bible school review next Sunday. So you guys will all get to hear what the kids have learned. And then we'll sing a couple, sing a couple songs that they have shared. And uh, so VBS is, uh, the picnic is next Sunday. We'll also have the big slip and slide. So everybody bring your bathing suits, and uh, we'll have an ambulance waiting on call uh, so that everybody can share in the slip and slide joy. Um, we are still looking for some teachers in a couple of areas for our Sunday Bible school that we're launching later this fall. So we need help in the nursery, uh, preschool, and then substitutes. And what we're looking for is every class to have two teachers that are in there consistently together, you know, taking off some weeks here and there. And then uh, teachers that are substitutes on the back end, in case both teachers for a class are out, we can put in a substitute and make things continue to work. We're really looking forward to our Sunday Bible School format coming up because it's an opportunity for us to be trained up ourselves and to train up our children in a little bit more intimate discipleship than the large group format has allowed us in previous years. So please consider how you might help Nursery, we've got a, uh, somebody who's taken the lead and is excited about the curriculum, so you could maybe just come in and learn and love on babies. Preschool, we need a, a couple extra bodies and then substitutes. Anybody who's even interested in teaching on the side or every once in a while, let me know. So we are going to finish our series called The Christ today. This is the last sermon in the Gospel of Mark, if you can believe it. It has taken us about 50 sermons to get through the gospel of mark so if you were wondering why it felt so long it's because it's been so long uh 50 different sermons over the course of two different segments to get through the whole gospel of mark and remember the theme of this gospel is to remind us to teach us to reinforce in us that jesus is the christ the son of god and so if you have your bibles consider opening them up to mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20 and uh, it is in the Bible app today as well, so you ought to be able to find all the slides in there. As you're opening up, we'll remind ourselves where we were at at the end of last week. Mark chapter 16, verse 6, um, we, we find that uh, Mary and Salome, they've come to the tomb, and they find that the stone is rolled away. They go in, they see a young man. He says, don't be afraid. You look, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. But he has been raised. He is not here. See where he was laying. Now I want you to go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And I want you to remember that. The last thing that, the, that they were supposed to tell the disciples is go to Galilee and meet Jesus. That was the last message for Peter and all the other disciples is go to Galilee and Jesus will meet you there. And then the women, they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And this is actually where the gospel of Mark in most of the older texts ends. And this ending feels a little bit like a downer, doesn't it? That Jesus is risen, but we're afraid and we're hiding. And so... Uh, we, we end up with, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, there is a whole nother section of Scripture that if you look in many of your Bibles, just before 
verse 9, it might, might say something like this. This is what it says in the English Standard Version that I use uh, for this Mark series. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Now, if you have a King James or a New King James or some of the older translations, like from the early 1900s or late 1800s, and they're still float around, you've got some traditionalists, it might not say that in your Bible. And we're going to talk about that, and we're going to kind of explore that a little bit as we go. But first, let's look through and read all of Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, just to get a feel for what it is that we're talking about. So, Remember, we've got these ladies, Mary and Salome, and they are at the tomb, and they have, they've been told by the angel to send the disciples to Galilee. And then we get to verse 9, and it says this. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he being Jesus, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen." And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on, uh, their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So much of what we read here is actually stuff that sounds consistent to a certain extent with what we know of Scripture and the, and the rest of the New Testament story. Um, interesting things to point out, that we'll talk even more about that point to why this is not consistent with the rest of the gospel of Mark is that verse 9, what does it do right off the bat? It introduces a character, a person, that we have been introduced to previously as though we've never met her before. And then what is something that we don't see in all of this conclusion? Well, we never see Jesus and his disciples meeting in Galilee. Except the gospel of Mark that we had previously twice in the last day of Jesus' life and then right after his resurrection, the disciples are told, I'll meet you in Galilee. So if we were going to see the story continue, what might we expect? That they meet in Galilee. And so there's a lot of really good reasons for why the gospel of Mark ends in chapter 8. And that most of our translations have this or something like it. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. So I wanted to do just a little bit of um, teaching on why we can trust our Bible. Why we, we, we see something like this and wonder, wait a minute. 
if the Bible is God's word, why would it be different in different letters or copies or manuscripts? If you've ever been on Facebook, and I'm sorry if you have, right? But um, you, you've probably seen one of those posts where someone posts a, a, the meme of all the verses in the KJV that are different or missing in the NIV as proof that the King James Version is the only real Bible. And we're going to talk about why that's kind of an inconsistent, okay, it's just not true. So anyway, why is that? What, what do we know about our Bibles? Well, the Bible that you have in your hand, or even the one you're scrolling through on your phone, this book, it is a beautiful, amazing book inspired by God, breathed out by Him into the minds of those who wrote it, is how it's described in Scripture. It is the, the true, absolute Word of God. But what's interesting is that what you hold in your hand is only a translation of the original books. So you're reading it in English, but if you wanted to read the Bible in its original language, most of us are familiar with this. We know that the Old Testament, we would read it in Hebrew. And the New Testament, we would read in both Greek and Aramaic. And so... Anybody here fluent in Aramaic? Like, me either. Uh, anybody good at Greek? I'm not. I have to use tools. I have to use other books, and I have to use translation resources to be able to read Greek. And so we have this privilege as 21st century Americans of having the Bible translated into English, which actually was a, a thing that was against the law as late as the 1500s. For the Bible to exist in any translation other than Greek and Hebrew or the Catholic Church's official liturgical language of Latin. Anybody know Latin really well? Me either, and I took three years of it in high school. Um, to my shame. <laughs> but, but what we've got is, is none of us could read the Bible if we were back in 1500s England. But some men and women, they fought hard for the privilege of translating the Bible into the language of the people. Martin Luther was the first one to translate the Bible from the Latin and Greek and Hebrew into German. We have men, anybody familiar with names like Wycliffe and Tyndale? If you've heard of them, these men fought and gave their lives in order for the translated scriptures to come from the, the languages nobody could read except for the clergy into the language that every man could read. And so that's why we have this book, is because people fought to see to it that it was translated from languages that very few people could read into the vernacular that everyone can read if they're only given the proper education. And so if you want to read the Bible, like you want to go back and read the real Bible, the, the true Bible, you need to start brushing up on your Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. But what we have is a wonderful work of translation that's very faithful to these old languages. Now, what's interesting is we don't have, like, a Bible from, from Jesus' day, a book that's full of Old and New Testaments in Greek and Hebrew. What we have are fragments of Scripture. We have full letters of Scripture. We have some things called codices, another nickel word, which is just fun to say. So, and it just means book. A codex is a book. Um, 
And, and so we've got these different manuscripts, all handwritten copies of the Bible in the original language. And there are about 5,600 Greek manuscripts or fragments that are, contain either part or all of the New Testament. So 5,600 different little hand-copied versions of books or sections or whole components of the New Testament. And the earliest of those date to just 50 years after Jesus. So in other words, we have, in, well, science and, and uh, you know, the people who do these things have fragments of New Testament books, little sections of them that are dated to within just 50 years of Jesus walking the earth. So the truth is it's only one little part of one verse that exists that is that old. But the whole New Testament is available by fragments that they pull together and do the research and find these, these little torn up pieces of parchment and animal skins with the original Greek written on them. The whole New Testament can be compiled by fragments that are just 150 years past the time that Jesus walked the earth. Now, you might go, well, that's a long time. It, it is, but it's not. Because we can look back and find those other little fragments and see that the 50-year-old fragments and the 150-year-old fragments, they agree completely in what they say. So we know there were faithful copies made of the Scripture all through those years. That the men and who, who were sitting and, and just, just copying a letter over so that it could be distributed, so it could be preserved. They were very faithful. And we can have the whole New Testament in a single work in the original handwritten Greek as copies of copies of copies of copies all compiled together to within 250 years of the time that Jesus walked the earth. And the whole Bible throughout history, has been translated 20,000 times into other languages. So, so we've got this huge history of the Bible and the manuscripts that make it up. And the manuscripts, those are the old copies, the handwritten copies. And so when we say that John, or excuse me, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, it's not in the earliest manuscripts, when we see that in our Bible, and it's, it's not just uh, Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20. The reason I said John is because my brain's already working ahead. John chapter 8, the first part, the woman caught in adultery. If you were to open your Bible up to that, you might see it over the top of it. It says some of the earliest manuscripts don't include this section, and it's inside brackets. And it's because what we have are copies of the scriptures that go back and... and copy of a copy of a copy of a copy and the earliest manuscripts that we have don't contain these portions of scripture so how did it how did it end up in the first place how did it become scripture um so why why would we how did it get included sorry i'm skipping ahead all of a sudden um how did mark this last little ending become part of scripture so it's believed that somebody read the end of Mark where everybody's crying and afraid, and they went, oh, wait, I don't like this ending. 
Let's see if we can match it up with some of the other Gospels and how they end. And it's actually believed that there was a man who was a disciple of the Apostle John. His name was Aristian. He lived somewhere between A.D. 60 and 130. So he was like a second and a half, almost third generation Christian who sat down and, and wrote out the ending to the Gospel of Mark to make the ending a little more happy, <laughs> to make it a little more exciting, and to match it up with the ending of the other Gospels. So we've got these, um, these manuscripts, and, and it's, it's been changed up a little bit. If, if Aristian wrote it in the early 100s, it would have been accepted as part of Scripture early on. But then we have other manuscripts that don't include it. So how can we trust the manuscripts we have if they're different, if, if there are different stories and different copies? Well, first of all, there aren't a lot of discrepancies. There are only a few small segments of Scripture like John 8, Mark 16, singular verses here and there that you'll find on that, you know, here's what the KJV has, and the, it's not in the NIV, so it proves that the NIV is the devil's Bible. Um, when you see that on Facebook, which once again is untrue, uh, it's, it's those few scriptures that are different, those few uh, little bit of discrepancies. And it's because those verses aren't in the earliest manuscripts. And why does that matter? I mean, because if we've called it scripture, isn't it okay to just keep calling it scripture? Well, there became a practice in the 1800s to start looking at these old manuscripts and to start honestly looking at, at what was there and saying, if it's not in the earliest copies, we should maybe put a little bit of a warning on there, right? Because, because if it's not the original writing of the apostle, the original writing of the brother of Jesus, Jude or James, we want to make sure that we, we treat it a little differently. It seems to be good spiritual words, you know, we can take and learn a little bit from it, but is it really inspired scripture? Is it really what was originally intended? So we look at these early manuscripts. Uh, most of our books of the Bible, they were completed within 40 years of Jesus' ministry. So really, the only ones that weren't written within the 40 years of Jesus' ministry are the ones that we have in the New Testament, written by the Apostle John. And the Apostle John wrote a lot of his in the 90s. Not like 1990s when it was cool uh, to be, you know hip to be square. No, that was the 80s. Uh, anyway, but in the 90s, the, like the 90-90s, the, the 90s, uh, that's when the Apostle John wrote most of his books, and it's because he was the last living apostle. He, he kind of like, all right, I'm about to croak here. It's time to wrap this thing up, and uh, God inspired him to write the Gospel of John, and then he has Revelation while he's on the Isle of Patmos in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, late in the first century. What's interesting is we find in Scripture that eyewitnesses are still alive to re refute the stories of Scripture. So e even Paul, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, he says that these people are still alive. So if you have a question about Jesus' resurrection, go ask. Uh, we, we see it in other places that there is an expectation. Luke writes in the beginning of his gospel, if these are the stories of the, the life of Jesus. If you've got questions, go ask these people because they're still alive. I mean, and I'm kind of summing it up. So 
our Bible is trustworthy, even though we've got some discrepancies in the copies and some, some things that pop up that don't seem to be Scripture, they come up in our later translations. It's trustworthy because it was all written within 40 years of Jesus' life. There were eyewitnesses alive when Scripture was written who could walk out and go, no, that's not true. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't say that. But we don't see that in, in the culture or in Scripture. Early creeds in Scripture were dated within two or three years and no more than five after the life of Jesus and after his ministry. 1 Corinthians 15, which I mentioned before, it's actually an early creed. You guys are familiar with like the Apostles' Creed, right? Where, we, where you would recite something to teach everyone what to believe and, and how to believe. That uh, little bit of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7, is believed to be an early creed. And also the Bible it's completely historically accurate and reasonable in all that it teaches, in the New Testament especially. They have found absolutely nothing in archaeology or history to refute any of the teachings of the New Testament. In fact, it's found over and over again that Luke was a great historian. So if you read the Gospel of Luke or Acts, he kept a better history of that era than any other historian. And so there have been archaeological digs that have confirmed what Luke teaches when others thought that something else was true. So our New Testament is historically accurate and reliable. So why is Mark 16, 9 through 20 considered questionable? If, the, if the, all of these manuscripts, we've got so many of them, if everything's reliable, if it was written early, if we can trust the Bible to be God's word, why is this one section not considered scripture by some translators because it's missing in the earliest manuscripts we have available to us so we go back to the earliest copies of the gospel of mark the ones that we can date within just a couple hundred years of its original pinning and it isn't there this section is not there so it looks like somebody added it later on to complete the gospel and it just ends up being included in translations. Now, another reason it's questionable, it's an abrupt transition in style and content from everything that came before it. So, Mark had talked about, as, as things are wrapping up, Mary Magdalene. She's already been introduced in the gospel. But verse 9, what does it do? It introduces her all over again like we've never met her. And so, that's an abrupt transition Galilee, Jesus had promised and the angel had told them to go to Galilee. That's where they were going to meet the risen Christ. And yet, the story shifts and they never go to Galilee. Wouldn't it make sense if Mark were going to continue his gospel? He would have mentioned the Galilee encounter since it had been such a prominent part of what he had taught before. Another interesting thing, one-third of the major Greek words used in this last little section are either brand new to Mark or they're used by Mark or used by this whoever wrote this in a, in a different manner from the rest of the gospel. So it, it's kind of like I, I picked a couple of words that, that are different in, in usage. Um, a buggy. What, what would you guys think of when, you, when you're a buggy? I say buggy. Um, what's that? Shopping cart. Okay. That's amazing because that's not what I thought of. Like, like, for me, a buggy is like a horse-drawn carriage or something. So um, it, it, it's kind of that kind of shift 
where Mark had used the word one way, and then the, this last few verses, it gets used in a completely different way. Like if he were talking about shopping carts in, in the first part of the gospel and called them buggies the whole time, and then these last few verses, all of a sudden Jesus pulls up in a horse-drawn carriage and he calls it a buggy. Right? You see that that, 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 that difference of, of language usage is completely wrong. Or the word poke. I love, I love this word. What is a poke? For a lot of us, it's this, right? This is a poke. For my wife, it's a grocery bag. Uh, and I'm just, you poke stuff in the bag. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, pig in a poke. You've heard, I don't know how you fit a whole pig in a grocery sack. But um, it's the same kind of thing. Some of us, when we hear poke, we think this. And others of us, Shelly, when we hear poke, think this. And um, it's, it's this change of usage of the exact same word. And it's the same thing that's happening in, the, in, in Mark here. The whole gospel has used words a certain way. And then these last 11, 12 verses, he ends up using major words in completely different ways with different meanings. And so we see this, and it's this abrupt shift in style and content and word usage. It's kind of like if you were reading Mark Twain, and then all of a sudden you hit a spot that reads like Dr. Seuss, right? So, so you're, you're reading it, and, and, and you know, it, this is amazing, and then all of a sudden it's like Dr. Seuss, and you're like, this feels childish, this feels different, it feels inappropriate. That's how these last few verses are in the Greek. Now, like I said, for those of us, when we read it together, we go, that sounds reasonable. But in the Greek, we get even more information revealed, and so it doesn't really fit. So, <clears throat> once again, this was added on later, most likely, to give Mark a proper ending. And it, it was written by someone who was spiritual and part of the church, but not part of the original gospel. Now, a, a, a quick thing to address, and, and this is not to, to poke or prod anybody, but I know some of us have deep affections for the King James Version or the New King James Version. And some of you might pull out your Bible and go, well, but, but my King James says, and doesn't have these brackets, and it doesn't have these things, and my King James Bible has verses that your Bible doesn't have. And here's the thing, is the King James Version is a solid translation. It was based upon the best texts and scholarship of its day. All right, now, anybody know when the first King James Bible was translated? Yeah, it was finished in 1611. 1611. Uh, do, do you know who was in charge of England at that point? King James, right? Isn't that profound? Uh, but anybody, can anybody tell me anything significant about King James? Very few of us, right? We maybe have a couple of Anglophiles who are like, oh, I know all about James. We know very little about it. What do we, what do we know about the things that are going on there? Well, you know, I mean, this is, this is the, the era, broadly speaking, of Shakespeare. Who hated reading Shakespeare in high school? You know, I mean, yeah, me. I, oh, it was terrible. Iambic pentameter. What the goodness? Um, and, and you just, it, it's dated language, but it, it was good, good translation for its day. Best scholarship of the day, best text they had available. But it was done in 1611. Now, it's 2021. How many years of scholarship and archaeology and linguistics have occurred and developed since 1611? Over 400 years. Now, 
what other things have changed? Well, you know, if, if we were still doing things the King James Version way, right, we'd be riding around in buggies and using pokes. Um, <laughs> now, th- th- you, you get it, we, we'd, be, we'd be back there still if the world had never changed, if things we had never learned anything more, if things had never developed, then, well, we could say that that was a great choice still. But things have developed, things have changed. What's interesting is the King James Version, especially in the Old Testament, is based upon texts that we found out were good, but there were better ones that were older as archaeology found them. The New Testament, there were, it was a good Greek manuscript that the King James Version was based on. But then as archaeology takes place, as they do research, they find older and more abundant manuscripts, which brings us to the place where things like this little ending of Mark, John chapter 8, all of them become questionable as to whether or not they were part of the original Bible. Now, how does extra, th- how does extra stuff end up in, in the manuscripts? Well, it could be things like as, the, as somebody's copying it, they put a little note out in the margin to explain the text or to add some other ideas. The next person who copies it, what do they do with that? Well, they just insert it in. They think it's part of the text. They think it just flows. Um, it'd be like, you know, cheating by copying somebody else's homework and then writing the little, uh, you know, the little guy that sits over the wall and stuff. You, you go ahead and copy that, thinking that's an important part of the homework. Um, it's that kind of thing. So I realize this is some, some stuff that maybe you didn't ever really care to know, right? But what it is, is as a Christian... You need to understand that the text you say you base your life on is reliable. And we have a culture that calls into question the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of the Bible every day. And in fact, it's even in other churches or other places that claim to be churches that the trustworthiness and truthfulness of the Bible is called into question in some of the most dramatic ways ways. We read scriptures that tell us how we should live and how we should behave and what God's expectations are for us. And we look at them and go, yes, but that was for then, not for now. Or that isn't part of the actual scripture. That's not what they meant. We know better now. And it's important for us as believers to, when we pick up the Bible, we do so with confidence. And we say, this is what was written and revealed, and if it's true, it's all true, and if it's false, why are we even here? There's no gray, no in-between. We must live it as it's written and as it's given to us, understanding that sometimes some stuff got added in places, but we know where it is now, and we're confident that what's left is true and trustworthy. So it is like... Well, there's that added part. Why should I trust the rest of the Bible? It's because we know that that part was added, that we've done the research, that we're honest with our faith, that you should trust what's left and trust that the rest of Mark is exactly as it was written by Mark according to what Peter taught him as inspired by the Holy Spirit. So if you've got questions you want to discuss, you want to poke a little bit, not the bag, but the poke, come talk to me afterwards. I've got great resources I can show you and hand you, but it's also important uh, that you not just take my word for it. Do some research on your own if you're curious. 
I would recommend if you are looking for a book, there's a book called Stand Firm, Apologetics and the Brilliance of the Gospel that includes not just a, a chapter on why our Bible is trustworthy, but also a lot of great apologetics work. It's available digitally, or you can order a physical copy. So Stand Firm, Apologetics and the Brilliance of the Gospel, that's marked down there at the bottom, because that's where some of this came from. Yeah, I don't know all this without having to read a book. So let's actually work our way a little bit at a time through this ending in the Gospel of Mark. Even though we don't consider it scripture, what we will say is that it's spiritual writings that was meant to inspire us. But we shouldn't create new doctrine that would contradict or overstep anything taught elsewhere in the Bible. So verses 9 through 11 says this, Now when he, Jesus, arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18 details something similar, in which Mary Magdalene encounters the risen Christ in the garden. If you remember, she doesn't recognize who, she, who he is, asks him, so where is Jesus? Where have they put his body? And then all of a sudden he speaks to her, and she recognizes him and gets excited and runs back to where all the other disciples are, and they don't believe her, but two of them come running back to the tomb, Peter and John, and they look inside and see for themselves that Jesus has risen. So it's not that this is an untrue statement. It is instead along the same lines as much of the Gospel of Mark. Remember, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, the disciples have had trouble believing. They've had trouble trusting. They've had trouble understanding what Jesus is telling them. And so the person who added on this little bit is continuing that thought that the disciples continue to struggle. Now, this is meant to encourage us. Why is it meant to encourage us? Because the very same men and women who walked with Jesus for three years and followed him in ministry, when it came time to believe that he had come back from the dead, what's their response? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, prove it. Are you for real? So for us, separated by both distance and time, to struggle with believing at times is perfectly acceptable. We understand that when persecution arises or difficulty comes, that sometimes it's difficult to believe. Of course, in those moments, we don't retreat and hide, but instead we should actually seek out a deeper understanding of our faith. That we might either, well, doubt in truth or have our doubt dispelled by the truth of the gospel. So this little bit of Mark looks like it was likely drawn to match up with the story in John chapter 20. And then we see another little section, verses 12 and 13. It says, after these things he appeared in another form to two of them. And as they were walking into the country... And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. So this is the story that Luke tells us in chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, that there were two disciples who were walking from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus, and they had a third person join them, 
on the whole journey, talked with them about scriptures and about the Jesus and about what Jesus had stood for and taught. And it wasn't until they all sat down together to eat that they recognized Jesus. And as soon as they recognize Jesus, he disappears. And then they go back and start telling the other disciples that he's risen. And so this is just that story, but compressed and made much more dense. What's interesting, though, is that usually when we find a story in the Gospel of Mark, he's the one that gives all the details. And the ones who copy him, Matthew and Luke, they're the ones who truncate the story or shorten it. So this is another reason to, to see that it's likely that this is an add-on. Mark would have been much more detailed and descriptive than this if he were in line with his usual practice. The next little segment, verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And this looks to line up with Luke 24, where Jesus comes and shows himself to the disciples gathered together. And John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29, where he does the same thing. And the, the disciples who were gathered together on the day of his resurrection finally see him in the flesh. Now, this is meant once again to encourage and show that it is exactly as Jesus had predicted. Mark 16, 15 is a summation or a, a condensation of Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the Great Commission. And actually, this is my favorite version of the Great Commission. And it's such a bummer when you find out that it's not really Scripture. I mean, it's spiritual, but it's not Scripture. So it's not authoritative in the same sense that Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is. But Jesus, it says, said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. I, I, I like that one. That one's nice, isn't it? But it's not likely the inspired word of God, but instead, words that were inspired by the word of God tacked on to the end of Mark. Verse, or chapter 16, verse 16. Here is another passage we have that gets um, kind of misused. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So this one's been added on. If we look at Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching, he tells everybody there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost to believe and be baptized that you might be saved. John 3.18, Jesus tells Nicodemus he needs to be born again of both spirit and water. And it is that, that notion that baptism actually is necessary for salvation. That's what a lot of people think that Mark chapter 16, verse 16 teaches. Now, first of all, if it's a tack-on and it's not actual scripture, we shouldn't be drawing doctrine from it, first of all. But even at that, it doesn't say you have to be baptized to be saved. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not get baptized will be condemned. No, it says who does not believe will be condemned. The whole verse taken together makes it clear that belief is still the, the determining factor in either salvation or condemnation. But there's an understanding that everyone who believes should be baptized. That baptism is a critical part of your faith. By the way, if you've never been baptized, but you've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and you're ready to publicly proclaim that profession, wow, that was rough. 
you're ready to let everybody know that you've trusted Jesus, it's time to follow him in obedience and participate in believer's baptism. The water will be cold, I can promise that, but it'll be wet and it'll be a public profession of your faith in obedience to what we've been commanded to do, following after Jesus in baptism. And so this verse, it's in line with or is reminiscent of Acts and John, but it's not something that we should take and establish new doctrine on. Now this is the one that gets really exciting, this little segment. Verses 17 and 18, that Jesus supposedly says to the disciples, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. Well, we've seen that. They will speak in new tongues. We actually see that on the day of Pentecost. They will pick up serpents with their hands. That one doesn't sound as fun, right? It, it, all of a sudden, we're in West Virginia. There's a lot of Mountain Dew involved. You know, it's just, it gets awkward really quick. And if you're from West Virginia, it's not the whole state. It's just most of it. Um, not the place you're from. Not the place you're from. Wherever that is. I'm from Missouri originally. Right, and you're all like, Missouri? Yeah. Uh, they will pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Oh, that sounds fun as well, doesn't it? And they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, what we see here is there are actually people who have taken this, these few verses, uh, two verses, and they've made new doctrine. They handle snakes. They drink things, they do things that most of us would go, that's foolish. That's testing God. And what we see here is if this was pinned later and added to, somebody was taking likely the descriptions of the, the things that happened in the book of Acts and making them normative for all Christians. Now, we can look in the book of Acts. If you read the whole book of Acts and you will see all of these things, demons are cast out. People speak in tongues, both on the day of Pentecost and as the Holy Spirit comes into both Gentiles and <clears throat> diaspora Jews for the first time. And also, Paul, do you know what he does? One day he's out collecting firewood after a shipwreck. By the way, um, just watch for things when you're collecting firewood. But he's out collecting firewood after a shipwreck, throws the wood in the fire, and a snake jumps out and bites him. One snake... One bite, it's deadly, he should die, but he doesn't. And that's the only place in Scripture, other than right here in Mark 16, where we see somebody handling a snake, getting bitten, and not dying. Personally, I don't think it's what we would call normative for the church. In other words, there's two different things. When we read like the book of Acts, is it describing something? Or is it teaching us something about how we should be? And sometimes in the book of Acts, it is simply describing the history of what happens. Like when Paul gets bitten, but is okay. It doesn't mean that it's normative for all Christians to pick up snakes and get bitten and be okay. Now, isn't that a relief? Isn't it nice to know I'm not going to pull out a box and we're going to have like a line and then communion afterwards? No, is, I mean, this is, this is good, right? Um... Drinking deadly poison, not a thing we see anywhere else in Scripture. Another reason to believe this is just a tack-on, just an addition. 
So, uh, of course, we've seen in Scripture, and we see it elsewhere, laying hands on the sick and they recover. But it's thought by scholars that this is just somebody summing up what they see in the, gospel of Acts, or the book of Acts as they add this little bit to the gospel of Mark. Mark 16, 19, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. This is a, a, a copy of Luke 24, verses 50 through 51. And then finally, this last little statement. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. And this really is just a summation of the whole book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts, many of us, we read it and we think, man, that's like, that's a long time. But the, the gospel of Mark, it was finished sometime like A.D. 57 to 59, somewhere in there. And the book of Acts was completed by A.D. 60 to 62, Somewhere in there. So the book of Acts was written, was finished just after the gospel of Mark and, and shared with all of the churches. And so if somebody were to add on a little bit of extra Mark, it could be just a couple of years after Acts is completed. They're adding on to the end of Mark the things that they see happening in the book of Acts, which is the history of the church and the things that do happen. So all this to say... When we look at this last little bit of Mark, many of us will go, first of all, why does it say it's not in the original manuscripts? And then others of us will say, I ain't handling no snakes. That's crazy talk. And we can react with confidence saying, first of all, there's no reason to doubt our scriptures. In fact, the, 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 the very truth that we acknowledge that this stuff isn't in the earliest manuscripts proves that we're being honest with our scriptures that we're being honest with the scholarship and with the history. And because it's not scripture, but it is instead just spiritual writing, we don't have to take it as doctrine. So there'll be no snakes this week, nor next week, nor the week after that. We will not drink poison as part of communion. That's just not going to happen because it's not scripture. But we can be encouraged that when we doubt, when we struggle, when we are in fear, we're not alone. That even whomever wrote this little addition of, onto the Gospel of Mark, he wanted us to be confident in our faith. He wanted us to trust the truth of Scripture. He wanted us to live in such a way that we glorified God and believed in His Word. So, concluding thoughts. I got no real application for you like I do a lot of weeks. You know, go do this, go believe that, go live this way. Instead, it's pretty simple. I want you, every time you pick up your Bible, to know that there are some really great men and women who have invested multiple hundreds and thousands of hours into making sure that you have a faithful copy of God's Word in a language that you can read. And so it doesn't matter if you read the King James Version, the New King James Version, the English Standard Version, the Christian Standard Bible, the New Living Translation, the New American Standard, the uh, Holman Christian Standard, the non-inspired, I mean the, the NIV, um, so I, as good as the NIV is, I actually don't prefer it at all, um, but it's okay. Uh, you know, any translation that you were to buy from Amazon or Lifeway or you bought at Family Christian before they all closed up, any modern translation is trustworthy and reliable. Now, there are some modern paraphrases uh, that we, we, sh we can read and appreciate, but we need to be careful building belief and doctrine out of those. 
The Message Bible. If your main study Bible is the Message Bible, find a better translation than that. The Message is good for helping us understand some of the harder aspects of Scripture, but it's a terrible translation overall. So, if you have a modern translation of the Bible in your hand, it's trustworthy and it's genuine. Second, we need to understand in our life the difference between Scripture and spiritual literature. And I say that because some of us actually will pick a book up off a bookshelf at a Christian bookstore or we'll order it from somewhere and we'll treat spiritual literature as though it were Scripture. We'll treat what someone has written in a devotional as more important than Scripture. Some of us maybe have a habit, you know, uh, anybody else read Oswald Chambers? You know, my utmost for his highest. Uh, <clears throat> Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon. That, that's, a, that's a big one. Uh, Jesus Calling, if you've read that one. Some of us treat those things as more important than Scripture. And we need to draw firm lines in our spiritual life between Scripture and spiritual literature. Scripture always has the final say, especially when spiritual literature gets dicey, gets weak, starts saying weird stuff like handle snakes and drink poison. We go back to the Bible and the original words and the original manuscripts, and we confirm that nowhere are we commanded to do such things in the original manuscripts. And here's something that we have to work through and struggle with, with is that when we read the ending of the Gospel of Mark and this guy, whomever he was, that tacked on this little bit to make it complete, who finished it up for us, who tried to make it into an encouraging ending instead of one that was a little more depressing. The problem with that is we all, we need to be satisfied with what God's already given. We need to be satisfied with what God has revealed. Now that doesn't mean we won't have questions Scripture tells us everything we need to know for life and godliness and to know enough about God and salvation that we might enter into his presence. But it in no way pretends to tell us everything about everything. And so we need to be satisfied with that some days. As, as, as frustrating as that can be when we have a question and Scripture doesn't answer it, we don't all of a sudden then go to the people who have spent way too much time imagining answers and adding to God's word. Instead, we stick with what God's word has said. Some of this in modern context happens with angels and demons where people are not satisfied with what scripture says. And so they go to other places, people with great imaginations who make up things that seem scriptural but are not. And so we need to be satisfied with what God has actually said. Instead of always seeking the things that will make us happy or feel good when we're done reading Scripture. Sometimes when you're done reading Scripture, you might feel depressed. You might feel inadequate. You might feel angry. But also other times you're going to feel encouraged and you're going to be lifted up. And every time when you read Scripture with the right heart, you will see your Christ who loves you and has called you, and lived, and died, and rose again for you, and asks you to be more, and walk closer, and be faithful. So, trust your Bibles, 
Know the difference between scripture and spiritual literature and learn to be satisfied with what God has said instead of going into endless speculation and dreaming and additions because those are of no value to any of us spiritually. Once again, if you've got any questions, you want to poke a little bit at me, you've got concerns, come talk. I would love to just help you discover answers for those questions. We won't go into speculation. <laughs> we won't go into crazies, but we'll try and find good, solid answers. So as we wrap up this morning, we've got one more song to share together. So if the worship team, if you guys would come on up. There's no heated emotional you know, response necessary this morning. Rather, it's let's pray and just thank God for what he's blessed us with in his word. Father, we thank you for today, and we just thank you so much for the power of your word and the fact that you have given us scholars who love your word enough to look into it, to be able to see in the original languages those things that are faithful copies and those things that are not so faithful so that we can not question your word but be confident in it. We know its wrinkles. We know its it's ins and outs, we can understand that what we have in our hands is faithful and true. And so we celebrate this morning that you have given us your word that is sure, that is desirable, that is good for everything we need for life and godliness. And that when we read it and apply it, we can know the truth that you have for us and the salvation that can come only through your son. I thank you for everyone here this morning. I pray that you would bless them with a curiosity to know your word and to know you more. That they would not be satisfied with the answers they've received that are just platitudes or just Sunday school answers, but instead they would dig deeper into your word and they would seek the real truth that lies within its pages. Lord Jesus, we know that you ultimately are the way and the truth and the life that no one comes to the Father but by you. And so we pray that as we read your word, it would reveal you to us. It's in your name we pray, and by your life and death and resurrection, that we even have the privilege of being made alive. And this privilege of being together today. Amen. fails me and all my days I've been held in your hands from the moment that I wake until I lay my head I will sing of the goodness of God all my life you have So, so good With every breath that I am able I will sing a 
Dive in deep to God's word this week. Join us at VBS. Uh, I, I bet there's room in the back for you to come and, and listen to even the teaching throughout the week. And uh, stay afterward, help decorate. We won't have any of our adult studies or youth studies throughout the week, but we'll see you again next Sunday if you don't join us for VBS. And we look forward to uh, 
celebrating what God's done, enjoying a picnic together, and I expect to see everyone down the slip and slide. So God bless. Have a great week. Be stretching. And uh, love you all. Look for God's face in all the church. <laughs>